0: Hello, everyone. This is Connie Morgan introducing episode two of Bowen and Twyman. If you missed it, this is part of our new podcast series featuring Michael David Cobb Bowen and Winkfield Twyman Jr. This episode is about the moral moment of Claudine Gay. The show starts with a clip from the West Wing television show pilot season one and episode one, where White House communications director Toby Ziegler confronts a moral issue of anti-Semitism in real time. Mike and Wink compare this clip with former Harvard University President Claudine Gay and her inability to speak with moral clarity about genocide of Jews in real time before Congress because moral competence is spontaneous, not scripted or rehearsed beforehand. The clip is even more powerful if you can see it, so click the link in our show description to view it for yourself. Mike and Wink are two writers who see beyond dogma and slogans. They see into a place called free black thought. Let's start with the West Wing clip and then dig in. This is Bowen. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast.
1: It's only a matter of time with you, Josh. Yeah. That New York sense of humor was just a little Mary, bit... Reverend, no Reverend, please, need to... they think they're so much smarter. They think it's smart talk, but nobody else does. I'm actually from Connecticut, but that's neither here nor there. The, the, the point is,
0: Mary, I... She meant her. Jewish. What she said, New York sense of humor. She was talking about you and me. You know what, Toby, let's not even go there. There's been an apology. Let's move on.
1: I used to watch that show all the time. Oh my god!
2: Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was great uh, drama. It gave you a moral lesson or two every episode. Uh, the the acting was fantastic, and uh, I can still remember. I can still remember very important moments, like for example, the moral moment we just witnessed with Toby Ziegler, the White House communications director. Um, yes, and there were other moments too like, like that as well I remember once um, Sam Seaborne had been uh, asked by uh, one of his uh, uh, staffers to investigate a possible pardon for someone's grandfather and you might recall that episode he researched the matter and discovered that this person was in fact a heavy duty spy oh, for boy. the Soviet Union so he was like a tremendous traitor. And Sam was so <laughs> outraged because he's a very moral person. And so, you know, he, was, he was beside himself and he was telling his, uh, his staffer, he was gonna give that, that constituent uh, the business. He was gonna tell her everything. What a rotten, awful person her father was. That it was about the fidelity of the thing, the fidelity mm. uh, uh, to, to, to America yeah. and to our institutions. And then she reminded him that it wasn't the father, it was the grandfather we were talking about. And I think that sense of distance softened Sam's response. And when he actually Ah. spoke with the constituent, he said, well, you know, we'll do what we can do, no promises, and that's all she wanted to hear because her father was dying, I think, of cancer, only had a little Hmm. bit of time to live, and so she could report good news to her dying father, on his deathbed, as opposed to reporting to her dying father, your dad was like a Benedict Arnold of his age.
1: <laughs> wow! <laughs> but that was wow. so
2: instructive to me. Um, it oftentimes huh. makes me think about this whole way in which we view race today. We we kind of lack that sense of grace. I mean, oftentimes hmm. I will read things in which someone writes as if as if you and I had just gotten off the boat from West Africa, that we were brought over as slaves as a group, that we suffered Jim Crow laws as a group. Uh, That that is so, what's the word? I have this line. I never use the N word
0: Mm -hmm.
2: because it's offensive. So why did random people use the O word, oppression, with me? I Uh stand offended. Shrug.
1: (laughs) Yeah, interesting, interesting.
2: Yeah, it depends how you look at it, right? So, because we're 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 not oppressed just because we happen to share the same skin color as some random person, which brings me to uh, the former president of Harvard University, Claudine Gay. I mean, I, I I read so much commentary and heard so much on on YouTube about this is a great blow against every black woman and the the glass glass ceiling was just being cracked and and it's so. It's, it's interesting because if you think about it, what do you, I have in common with the former president except for skin tone mm-hmm. and Harvard? I've never been to Haiti, I've seen it in a book. Uh, <laughs> I've never been to Exeter, I'm public school stock. My folks have been around since 1622 in Virginia, so I don't know if this, this one-size-fits-all conception of blackness is appropriate or serves us well
1: absolutely not and and depending on how much reputation we get as the post-black guys uh you know (laughs) you just can't talk about all of us like that and Mm -hmm. and i was not particularly sorry to see gay go i i wanted her gone Uh, as soon as the third strike dropped. And the first strike against her was her opposition to uh, Roland Gerhard Fryer Jr., Mm -hmm. who uh, was an intellectual hero of mine, particularly because, as an engineer, this guy brought the numbers, and he was an economist. Uh, I happened to be fortunate enough to learn about him way back in I guess 05 when Freakonomics was first published and I was a pretty big blogger back then and so I got a galley copy of Freakonomics uh, and I happened to be hanging out with a couple other professor friends of mine and I brought along my copy and they were just like what and this was the book that brought forth the the idea which is kind of legendary now That if your name is Shaniqua, you're not going to get a job. Or that, uh, you know, uh, drug dealers in the hood make about minimum wage uh, rather than, you know, being ballers as they're portrayed. And so I was really glad to see that kind of economics being explored. And when uh, my friends heard that this guy's name was uh, Levitt, he was like, it must be some black in him, because why is he act, asking these questions? And it turned out that his partner in crime was Roland Fryer. Oh, wow. uh, so, Fryer has done so much interesting work. I can remember, you know, when I first when I first learned of Soul, I was very impressed, uh, primarily because uh, of his work uh, at the Fairmont. Uh, conference in San Francisco where he famously uh, came forward with uh, Milton Friedman and other economists to talk realistically about you know what economic prospects black Americans had rather than casting everything as a political or a social issue and then there's again where we could be post black because if the quote unquote black mainstream is all about political advantage or social advantage, uh, what about economic advantage and who's talking realistically about that? I mean, I, I tried to get into so many conversations about black economics and, and they would always fall off. But long story short, uh, I said, well, what kind of economist is this soul guy and, and why is he talking this kind of common sense stuff? Mm -hmm. And then over the years, uh, it, it finally at long last made sense to me. why he was talking common sense, because there is a latent threat of, uh, mm, well, I guess you, you, you'd have to have social justice and social ownership, you know, in that socialist sandwich. And, and he knows it doesn't actually work. Uh, the you good intentions to, don't necessarily give good results.
2: You know what's so fascinating to me, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, till the cows come home, if there are over 40 million black Americans, there must be over 40 million different life stories, experiences, and perspectives. And so I appreciate exactly what you said. And so I look at my own unique life story to think about, well, how did I come to conceive of blackness? And what's funny is that it was never so much about social justice. It was never so Mm -hmm. much about critical race theory, it was not about black nationalism, I came to, quote unquote, my blackness in a very organic, authentic way. Hmm. I used to be babysat by my uh, grandma, who lived on Terminal Avenue in uh, Hickory Hill neighborhood of Chesterfield County, Virginia 1960s, 1970s and my uncle, James Scott Twyman wisely would subscribe to and leave copies of Black Enterprise magazine on Grandma's Coffee Table, and Ebony Magazine, and Jet Magazine, <laughs> and I remember strolling through, yeah, don't tell, don't tell Grandma that, don't tell Grandma that I read Jet, but anyway, I would look through the issues of Black Enterprise, and I developed a sense that Blackness was about this world inside this magazine. Blackness was yes. about John Johnson, Barry Gordy, yeah. Percy mm-hmm. Sutton, Earl Graves, Reginald did you Lewis.
1: remember? Did you remember? Just like in the late '80s and early '90s, mm-hmm. there was an alternative to Black Enterprise called Emerge.
2: Briefly, yes, briefly. Yeah,
1: you remember yes, Emerge? Yes. Yeah, yes, that was yes. wild.
2: But so, if,
1: if if we're not a monolith, obviously we're going to react differently than everybody else. Uh, exactly. From right. Harvard. So exactly. what 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 is? How has Harvard undergone a change here, or is is? Uh, the, the loss of that president just a blip on, on your radar.
2: Oh, well, for me, and it's interesting you mentioned that because the uh, Yahoo News actually cited, I think yesterday or two days ago, an article I had written for Newsweek magazine, and I was cited as an example of a, a chasm, if you will, a split among elite black Americans as to how we perceive the resignation mm-hmm. of Claudine Gay. So, of course, on one side, there are these wonderful people from The Root, which is always known for their conservative traditional takes on things. And on mm-hmm. the other side, there was me, uh, who was quoted. But I think that there is something to that, that you, there is no one black response to the resignation of Claudine Gay. With all due respect to Reverend Al Shopton, with all <laughs> due respect to Derek Johnson, and the LCP, with all due respect to David Thomas, who's the president of Morehouse College, with all due respect to all those wonderful people, there's no one black response. My response, my response is, she needed to go, it was time to resign. For me, what opened and closed the door was both her treatment of Roland Fryer, uh, which you kind of alluded to earlier. Uh, Mm -hmm. I felt that she was, um, uh, she did not treat him well, shall we say. And then also her lack of publication of books her lack book mm. publication. I'm a very traditional scholar in that sense. I give a lot of credibility to people based upon their rate of production of books and articles. And mm. I was curious one morning, I woke up and thought, well, I wonder how uh, President Gay, Claudine Gay, compares to other presidents of Harvard University. Yeah. Surely, she's competitive, since so she's the first black president. Of course, she's yeah. up there in the running. So I started to look and I saw, well, she has zero books. Okay. Mm -hmm. I looked Uh at the previous president, three books. Okay. Previous president before that, six books. Okay. President before that, I think like maybe 20 books. Ooh, I was getting to get nervous now about Claudine Gay and her uh, her standing. Mm -hmm. The president before that, nine books. The president before that, maybe 27 books. I literally... Michael, I literally had to go back to the year 1773 to find a previous president of Harvard University who had zero books. So to me, that closed the door, along with uh, Roland Friars. It was kind of two doors closed at the same time. Of course, there are other problems as well. Uh, Her lack of uh, condemnation of the October 7th atrocities in real time. Her lack of moral... Clarity in her congressional testimony on December 5th, uh, the 50 allegations of plagiarism, that's, that's, that's yeah. a lot. And so for me it wasn't really a question of racial solidarity as I suspect it might have been for some. For me mm-hmm. it was a question of, you know, are, are, you, are you bringing good leadership to my cherished university or not? And it's interesting because I got frantic text messages I remember like a week after her congressional testimony from um, black <clears throat> friends in the mm-hmm. tight Harvard community, and the presumption in his text messages were, well, of course you're going to support her. Here's the petition. Sign. Oh, no and, and I just thought that was so... And I remember one day, I got two, one like five o'clock in the morning from a Harvard mom whose husband's a Harvard graduate, son is a Harvard graduate, so they're Harvard mm-hmm. all the way.
0: And, yeah.
2: uh, and then the afternoon... Another text message from a close person uh, to our family, who's also a Harvard grad. And, and they were both expecting me to sign up and sign this petition and show my support. And they didn't think to ask me as an individual, well, do you support her or not? As opposed to assuming, right? Right, Presuming right. mean that I must be a supporter. I think they were a little su- surprised if they saw my opinion in Newsweek. <laughs>
1: I guess so. It's funny because for me, I I followed, you know, I, I remember the first time I had an internship, I was working for the County Health Department of Los Angeles. And this was my first time that I was putting my computer skills to work in a a business kind of atmosphere. And it was the first time I was sitting in a meeting and learning the word implementation. I just thought, Oh, if you had good ideas, you just go with the good idea. Uh, But, um, I said now I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to use my computer skills and I'm going to go get a Harvard MBA and oh. I'm going to do this and, and use business because what we were doing there was a fancy thing called capitation which right, is right. the utilization of of health skills or you know health services distribution to see if it if, if it's working. Right. And I was like I could be, you know, a force for good change where everybody else was going by the seat of their pants and now this harvard case study method is real and practical and this is how i'm going to study um and so i paid attention to blacks at harvard but for the former reason not just because they were black i was like okay well these folks come to prominence and they must be at the top of their game but uh, it's not necessarily consistent i mean I loved Randall Kennedy when he came out with Reconstruction magazine. Mm -hmm. That was just one of those magazines where I said, the quality of this is so far above and beyond, you know, the Afrocentricity, you know, Hotep and other simple-minded stuff like The Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys or or maybe Superwoman to Superwoman. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that slow pace of Maya Angelou poetry. And I'm like, there's got to be another way to think that I'm thinking. And, and, and Kennedy did that. Mm-hmm. And I was very impressed by his work. And then I used to watch the Fred Friendly seminars with Charles Ogletree, mm. where they would put together these, these just hypotheticals. And say, well, how would we work through that? Or how would we think our way through that?
2: I remember that, yes.
1: And, and those were so impressive to me. Um, did what happened, you, what happened what, what, over
2: what,
1: time? I don't know. I, I, my theory is this, if, if okay. I could jump to that, which is, if black people were truly oppressed, um, then we would come up with people who are so extraordinary. If, if if we had stupendous oppression, then we would find stupendous talent,
2: oh, and those that's a good people point.
1: would rise to the top.
2: And I can name a few: William T. Coleman, Charlie Houston, yeah. Bill Hasty, um, Ralph Bunch. Uh, I could go on and on. But good, and Ralph point. Bunch was a monster. Oh my God! Now see, what? he should be. He should have been the first black president of Harvard. That's mm. what I think. This is a man who had who's first in his class at UCLA, Harvard PhD. Mm-hmm. He won a Nobel Peace Prize for mediating the Israeli-Arab dispute and four books on top of it. And so he's someone who you would have looked at as a president, the first black president, and you would have thought, my, we need to recruit more presidents of Harvard from that group. Not. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <about> the next <laughs> well, I don't you know. know... <laughs> This is,
1: this is this is this is a question. Uh, it, to to turn around the the popular expression, "Don't hate the player, hate the game."
2: Yeah.
1: If you love the game, then the right players will find their way up.
2: Hmm. Good point. Good point. Very
1: and good point. and and for example, if you love the game of baseball, Branch Rickey knew he was not taking a risk when he got Jackie Robinson.
2: Because mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Jackie Robinson had that pedigree, also from UCLA.
2: Right, right. right. And,
1: and so he's like, the game is going to get better if we get this guy in
2: here. Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't think that's what was on the mind of the Harvard Corporation when they selected Christine Gay.
2: I don't think so. Um, so the question Claudine. becomes, and I, I wrote something about this do you think there are modern day Ralph Bunches out there? That the Harvard Corporation could find and recruit, or is is that day come and gone of superlative black uh, college presidents? I think,
1: quite frankly, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll do the sharp elbows here, uh-huh. but I think DEI is tokenism, Ooh, and they don't it, need <laughs> they don't need that much quality. <laughs> That's to deep. fill their quota.
2: <laughs> you better bar your door. <laughs> but the Supreme Court caught them on this. Yes. They the just Indian. said yes,
1: what you're Indian. doing is yeah. you are pushing aside yeah. some yeah. Asian students because you can't be too Asian.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. yeah.
1: You gotta be black enough. So yeah. so 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 the so your student body actually mat- matches the marketing of your student catalog.
2: Mm-hmm. 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 And so- Well, you know what it is. I I wonder if it's it's not so much we need a black woman, maybe it really is we need a certain mindset reflected in the body of a black woman, right?
1: I think so too. So
2: so for example, would Carol Swain be recruited by the Harvard Corporation? For example, Mm. would Condoleezza Rice be recruited by the Harvard Corporation? Would her cousin Connie Rice be recruited by the Harvard Corporation? Would Thomas right. Sowell, author of forty-eight books—not zero <laughs> books—be recruited by the Harvard Corporation? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I guess Stanford
1: wins on this on this case.
2: Right, right,
1: right. Uh, right.
2: Uh, 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 you know, and it's it's so it's so disappointing, particularly since you want to impute good faith to the people who are clamoring for. Another black female president. I'm I'm thinking of—is it Mark Lamont? uh, uh, Twitter guy. Mark Lamont Hill. Yeah, yeah. He's the guy who he demanded. He demanded. Oh yes. The next president must must be in all caps a black female black woman. Where where, where does he get off? Not to make enemies, but where does he get off with that? Well, you know
1: that's 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 one of our tribes. That's, that's, that's in, in the nation of millions, there are, there are many tribes.
2: Michael, he's one person. He's one person out of forty that's million true. people. Suppose that's, I say I demand, I demand the next president be a black man. Who's going to listen to me? Who's going to credit me? And just Well, actually, me. you know,
1: there's there's a tribe of 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 liberals who who want that, and and you got you got to understand that there's a spectrum of political um, actors and political philosophies in America mm-hmm. that get squished into two parties.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: We, we're we're not thinking that way. I mean, we're, it's right. kind of a winner-take-all system, and there are always these threads. There's always going to be some socialist and Marxist threads. There's yeah. going to be some anarchist threads, you know, the Burning Man thread. There's going to be ultra-conservatives. There's going to be right wing. There's going to be, you know, proud boys. And, you know, I, I can remember most of my young life
2: mm-hmm.
1: when Strom Thurmond was a senator from North Carolina. South Carolina. Was it North or South Carolina?
2: I know that. I know it was South Carolina because... South Carolina, okay. When my wife and I went to visit Georgetown, South Carolina years ago, the uh, local townsfolk and the mayor, and, and, or, or they were... Sharing with us family secrets from the Strom Thurmond household. That apparently hmm. Strom had a black daughter, as you might be aware of, and that, I've that heard had that. been an open secret in Georgetown, South Carolina, back back in the day. Back in the day. But I digress. Hmm. I digress, Michael. I digress.
1: No, but I'm saying, <laughs> I, you know, the 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 segregationist, racist, Klan sympathizers, they get a senator too. You get a senator. You get a senator. You get a senator. But. <laughs> there's there's no senator like that now yeah and yeah. and 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 you know that 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 property is declining in america like even now substack was accused of being a a harbor of nazis oh, and that there yes. are nazis making money off the substack platform and That's then you they and me. finally yeah. turned around and said oh when we when we really investigated this there were 26 substacks or excuse mm-hmm. me, there were six substack publications right. with twenty six paying subscribers. Mm-hmm. Twenty six out of two million. Okay? That's, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And so Yeah, you know You know, yeah. every
1: these threads of political philosophy, no matter how wackadoodle they are, they have a place in our democracy. And they, they have a place in the open society and they we are. don't need to shut them down. They'll just fizzle in their own cosplay, you know, imaginations.
2: But Michael, the, 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 the moment, the, the, the call of the moment is to pick the next president of Harvard. And to me, we should look at five things. I'm not on the Harvard Corporation. I'm mm-hmm. sure I will never be consulted. But if I were to offer my advice, I would say, number one, it's time for a generational change. We can't have people who knew the 1960s and 70s and 80s at the top of the heap at Harvard. We need someone in their 30s. You need someone who is close to whatever generational influences like TikTok and Instagram and Twitter are impacting college kids and grad students in the yard. Number two, merit only. The the time has passed for reindeer games. It's no longer time to check (laughs) boxes. We need the best and brightest at this moment in Harvard's history. Number three, we need someone who has moral courage. In my research at the past presidents, I was so taken aback by how these were men, and they were mostly men, who seemed to know how to do the right thing in the moment. I hmm. never saw Derek Bach or Neil Rudenstein having to be tutored by a fancy law firm before they could say and do the right thing in the moment. I mean, remember that clip that we started our session with? Toby Ziegler isn't consulting with Covington and Burley or Hogan and Hartston before he decides to speak up. Right. He comes from within. I think the search committee needs, they need to ask every candidate, give us three references who can attest to your moral courage in a moral moment, and then the committee And they should have a business school professor on the committee, because they conceptualize Mm -hmm. case studies, they should then ask those three references, give me three other people who know this candidate who's been challenged in a moral moment, and how do they respond? That's what you want, and that is what you need during a a decade of division and strife. Number four, I think you need someone who is, um, who has presence, someone who, fills the room. I'm not talking the charisma of, say, Doug Wilder from Virginia, who had loads of charisma. I'm more Mm -hmm. talking the presence of Mordecai Johnson, the first black president of Howard University. From all accounts, he was one of the leading black pastors in the 1900s, second maybe to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And you sense, when he was in the room, a presence. You sense this was a man of moral authority, moral divinity. Yes. I think that's important uh, for the search committee. And finally, they need to pick someone who is a non-conformer. You don't need more conformity around Harvard Yard. You need someone who has the perceptive vision to make the hard calls in real time on their own accord, to take their own counsel. You need someone who can do that coupled with presence and moral authority. And in their 30s, and then finally, number five, good Lord, someone who's written a book, (laughs) at least write one (laughs) book. That's all I ask. That's all I ask, Michael. Just one book? (laughs) So that's what I would say to the uh, search committee. Interesting. Yeah.
1: So I don't have very many recommendations except for what just listening to you has made me think. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I think is even if someone – Demands, from that perspective, another female black president of Harvard. Okay. There's got to be someone better. And what I heard was that there was. Oh, that really? That there was someone who had published at least 22 papers and had written several books. Okay. And was up to date. This wasn't someone who had done that. 15 years ago right, and right, basically right. said, you know, I am done with that. Mm-hmm. But someone who has published very recently. Okay. Um, so there is actually a, 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 a black woman of that st- academic stature mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. somewhere in the wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to beat your networks and see if you can find <laughs> them. Um, but I, I'd have to chase my browser history to find out where I found that person. Here's an
2: idea for you. One of my Harvard, uh, connections one of my Harvard friends uh, she said well you know wink if you're demanding this kind of Nobel Peace Prize standard and publication of books uh, why not Barack Obama he's a Harvard guy he was president <laughs> won a Nobel Peace Prize he said how about him well I put it to you Michael how about Barack Obama is next president of Harvard University
1: no no, no you, don't, you don't go you don't go from president of the United States. To president of, of of a university, that's a step Har- down. It is Harvard, but, d- d- no. I mean, okay. w- what has Harvard got over Princeton? Oh, so I mean, I for example, <laughs> I, I I thought of Condoleezza Rice, yes. who was provost, yes, of of Stanford, and you know a a a brilliant uh, student of yeah. of Russia Russian history,
2: yeah,
1: and speaks Russian. <laughs> Like, yep. like a native. She could probably recite Pushkin uh, at the drop of a dime. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, yeah. But, you know, once, once you step down from that level,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they, they deserve their peace and quiet and tranquility oh, and, and, and quiet wisdom. I mean, now that's I it. would like to have seen Colin Powell run for president. And he, oh, didn't, yeah. he didn't think he, he should have done that. Sure,
2: sure. Uh,
1: sure. Being a military guy.
2: Which is supported uh,
1: he, Colin he was Powell?
2: Which is supported uh, Colin Powell for president of Harvard?
1: Huh, that's that's a tough one, but still, there's 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 other folks. I don't I I don't really. I used to. If you caught me in 1995, yeah, when I was chasing the black celebrities and and and, <laughs> you know, when when I was eating every Cornell West book, speech, and, right, and right, poem. Right. Yeah, I might have had a, an opinion there, uh-huh. but you know, I—the person that that strikes me as someone who could truly make a difference in American education—her name is Catherine Burblesing. and she runs the toughest charter school in the UK.
2: Oh, okay. Oh yes, I know what you're. Her talking Her students
1: about. do great.
2: I love her. I love her. I love her. And she's hardball. You know, let's, let's tell the Harvard Corporation they're missing the best thing on planet Earth. Let's tell them that.
1: She's, she's awesome. She's she would, awesome in person. Yeah. I, I, I was fortunate enough to meet her.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and she's super down to earth <clears throat> and all about the students.
2: She's got the presence, the moral authority. She is yes. a, a visionary nonconformer. Here's a knock on her. I would suggest, I love her, but I think she's of the wrong generation. I think you need someone closer to the kids in the yard, in their tw- closer. To well, to
1: their she seems like she's got lots of energy. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: she was born in 73.
2: Yeah. So. You, want, you want someone born in 1990. That's the sweet spot. Well, here's the thing, though. We the don't know going who's to on the Harvard the Corporation. Harvard.
1: <laughs> we don't know who's in the Harvard Corporation.
2: We don't because there is a move afoot, as you know, to replace the current board.
1: Well, that that would be interesting, you yeah. know, because I'm thinking, I mean, it has been almost forty years since Shelby Steele published uh, uh, the content of our character, right? And he right. identified white guilt, mm-hmm. and and this is the margin uh, that his uh, uh, son Eli Steele has has said is this is what has leveraged uh, all of mm. these mediocre people right. to be second blacks. Right, like right. the first blacks were great. The first blacks were world quality.
2: I can name them, and, or you can name them.
1: And now the second blacks are just kind of, eh, you know, they're, 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 they're riding on the social capital.
2: That's a deep Perhaps
1: argument. of the first blacks.
2: That is so deep, Michael, because in my own research, it astounds me. How many first blacks I come across who were like number one in their college class, number mm-hmm. one in their law school class, Phi mm-hmm. Beta Kappa, class orator. I'm talking Harvard, 1890s, at uh, the yes. time of so so, you, so there's a lot to what you say, maybe DIE DEI, I'm sorry. <laughs> maybe affirmative action. Yeah. I know, I know <laughs> that's right. But maybe that the, the unforeseeable consequences in our rush to bring people in, we're suppressing their natural um, aspiration and overachievement. That now we you're are. incentivizing underachievement, right?
1: We are, but I think there's a general there's a general supposition about uh, against supply and demand. Mm. For example, uh, I I recently heard people talking about how Bayard Rustin has been forgotten,
0: hmm.
1: where he was so excellent. I mean, he wrote, he, he, he outlined the larger vision right. of Martin Luther King's speeches and, and, and the work of the SCLC. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rustin was up there with A. Philip Randolph. And I said, let's take a, an economic look at this. A. Philip Randolph ran one of the most powerful unions in this country. And and when trains were the jets of their day, mm. uh, the, the, the the stewards were black. And I said, Well what if A. Philip Randolph had decided to turn towards hospitality, hotel management, then you know, Hilton Holiday Inn would probably be owned by by black folks today. Oh. And and so you have to look at what the skills were that we had when we are majorities in these in these uh, in these labor unions and in these industries. Maybe I'm freezing. And yeah. the glass ceiling came off, but we decided we didn't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an interesting thing that yes, we were constrained to those places, those those narrow industries, and nobody wanted to fold sheets anymore. Mm-hmm. But we might have had a union that ran. Holiday Inn and and all the hospitality industry. Wow. So I do look at the supply and demand of talent. And, you know, when I was working at Xerox in the 80s, and I actually did the numbers for the affirmative action and the the manpower planning, Mm -hmm. we just did not have, you know, people who wanted to be computer scientists. We would go to the neighborhoods and say, hey, here's a computer. And they would say, well, you know, how could I possibly make money with that? Or what's that sure, thing? Sure. And sure. I couldn't, you couldn't hold people's attention. So you can always find a place where there's a quote-unquote glass ceiling where black folks are not necessarily interested in going, and our school system is not very good at giving them exposure to that and saying, hey, you could be a successful chemist. Well, who wants to be a successful chemist? And, but but so many people want to be a successful pro athlete or a, a, a successful entertainer. Yeah, and we've done great in those oversupply. You know, uh, and a, that's why they're they're, why they're they're better.
2: It's a fascinating point. Uh, you mentioned chemistry. Uh, I recall that uh, Doug Wilder, the first black governor of Virginia, the first black governor <laughs> in any American state. He, uh, uh, I think, he went to. Uh, Howard undergrad, either Howard undergrad or Virginia Union University. But in any event, okay. this is like in the 1950s. And what was his major? Chemistry. Hmm. And I just thought how atypical that would be in the modern era. But in the 1950s, if you were black in college trying to find a good solid major, that was probably not very, not that atypical, because uh, it was a solid degree that, you know, produced some rate of return. Of course, he went on to law school, became a lawyer but I just think that's an interesting uh, an interesting point. Um, do you think, I have another theory, Michael. It, I just thought of this as I rolled out of bed the other day. Could it be, Michael, me. going to your supply-demand idea, could it be that before the 1960s, before the Civil Rights Movement, those blacks who were going to college and higher education were more likely to go into theology and education. But post 1960s, post civil rights, the best and the brightest are more likely to go into law, medicine, dentistry, business administration, which is great, which is fine, but it produces a different spiritual cast to your black leadership. So if your black leadership in the 1920s, 30s and 40s are more likely to spend time at Virginia Union University's Divinity School, or the Howard Divinity School, or the Harvard Divinity School. They're going to be more in touch with their spiritual side and how they view the world from that lens than someone in my generation, in lore, who aspired to, say, Harvard Law School, or Yale Medical School, um, or Stanford Business School. So could it be Mm -hmm. that affirmative action, in a way, has kind of molded and shaped a different caste to the black elite to, uh, so that the black elite today is less spiritual in nature and perhaps more um, hyper-professional in nature. And the knockoff effects would be the decline of the black church, the decline of spiritual life in black families. Whereas in mm-hmm. the 1950s, the leaders were more likely to have been products of um, th- uh, theological Education or a divinity school. What do you think about that? As a thought,
1: I I do think that. I think there's there's a, a deeper trend, because as soon as you said divinity school, my mind went straight to Carter G. Woodson, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. whose book I only read within the past four years. Right, and he was saying, you know, as opposed to Booker T. Washington, who would form a technical institute, mm-hmm. he says you guys have to get rid of these divinity schools and stop talking about cosmic justice mm. and yet there were people with native intelligence in that, you know, people who could say who who didn't even need to study the Bible cause they had it memorized.
2: Sure. Right. Right. right.
1: Um, who, who left the ministry, but still entained, uh, retained uh, retain that, that, that spirit right. and that moral fortitude. Right. And, and, and went into law and mm-hmm. went into politics. Um, Maybe not medicine so much, but I, I I can see why that would that would go sure. as well.
2: I mean, Reverend so, Adams, yeah, Jr., the first Black chair of the Education Committee, a Reverend, his father, a Reverend. I mean, so you have that tradition certainly in some yes. pockets of Black leadership. During no,
1: I, I I absolutely agree, um, uh, and 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 that is that is part of our legacy. It's it's an admirable legacy, mm-hmm. and even though. I grew up, you know, with consternation every time I would see, well, let's see what the black community thinks. And they would go to Reverend Chip Murray of First AME Church and you would get the gospel <laughs> choir swinging back sure, and forth. Right, right, well, right. Reverend Murray, what do you think about this thing about right, Los right, Angeles? Right, right, and, right, right. and that was tiresome for mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't bring it back to Barack Obama. Yes. When he started mimicking the cadences of someone in the pulpit, oh my God, that was so cringy! I just, I, I couldn't take it. I could not take it. But, but, but my father uh, graduated from Yukon in the fifties, yeah. and one of his fraternity brothers actually became a chemist, mm-hmm. uh, and he worked for the the DOJ, and he. Uh, was actually in the height of the cocaine era. Oh. He was one of the people who worked in the labs. Right. And he would be a, a forensic chemist and he would say, Oh, I've done these tests and I know what part of South America these these uh this was, was grown and this cartel is associated with this brand. Exactly. Uh, so he, he 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 actually made that work very well and he lives in one of the nicer suburbs of San Diego to this day. And his kids are, are, are fabulously successful. Um, But he did have a fun story about working late one night and uh, he had uh, four kilos of cocaine in his trunk of his car. (laughs) (laughs) He got pulled over for speeding. That's funny.
2: That's funny. That's a, but
1: yes, I mean, uh, the, 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 I I would like to see uh, black folks as GDIs. Well, And one of my rules is never second-guess black people. Mm -hmm. Just don't do it. I don't do a black people should. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of mental health, when we are giving too much credence to race Mm -hmm. and we're looking for racial slights, as you were recently writing about, Mm -hmm. um, that just takes over part of our brain yeah and, and we, should not, we should not have that, and Fair we yet. shouldn't be afraid of going against the grain. Right. There, is, there isn't a grain. there's right. what you are attracted to learn, and you need to find a place, especially if, if, if this is you know your, your first generation, you really have to go with that and say, "Look, I really want to know everything about biology. I'm mm. fascinated by DNA. Mm-hmm. And, and DNA has been decoded, but there's still lots of mysteries around right. chromosome number nine right. that explains blood type. And I want to know more about that. that. Maybe there's that. a new blood type I could find. I and I want that. to be like Charles Drew, who, who, who did this in the first place. I love that. You have to take that energy and believe there's a place for you in America.
2: So, so and, my- and
1: the more DEI we do, oh. the less we make that possible.
2: So you think that DEI, in excess, you think it suppresses a natural intellectual curiosity about the larger world?
1: It does. It does. Because they'll say, oh, well, you made it above the glass ceiling. You're set. No. It keeps going. You have to keep doing the research. You have to keep writing the papers. For me, I have to keep learning new computer languages and new architectures. Mm -hmm. It never stops. But you got to love it. You gotta
2: so, love it. So, how do we move the dial on that level of uh, curiosity? How do we, as "quote unquote" wise elders, uh, incentivize uh, the increase in curiosity in Black American culture and consciousness? And I say Black American culture mm-hmm. and consciousness with intention, because I don't think we would have the same issues in say. Uh, the West Indian immigrant stock or the Nigerian mm-hmm. immigrant stock. You may agree or disagree mm-hmm. with that. I think. Well, I, I think there's,
1: there's, you know, yeah. th- there's the immigrant desire to prove that you can make it in the new place. Right. And that right. energy is always going to be there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they are the ones that took the giant risk to leave their home and yeah. go to this yeah. new place. Yeah. So at the very least we could do is if your family's been in, in Kentucky your whole life, Maybe see if you can make it in Connecticut.
2: Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I love that a lot. The
1: country is big enough for you to have a new start. Mm-hmm. Go go, and do that and find yeah. out, yeah. hey, I'm not the only person that feels this way. And now I don't have, you know, when I went to elementary school and I tested, you know, that I, that I was high and I qualified for the gifted students program,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I wore glasses and got a blowout on the same day. And my blowout was magnificent. It was just good and floaty and I could see right. my own hair.
2: Right, right, right.
1: But I wore glasses too. And half the kid says, Oh man, your blowout is awesome, man. You got the biggest afro since, you know, I don't know <laughs> who. It's Jim Kelly in Enter the Dragon, right? Right, right, right. And 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 the other kids said, Oh, you got four eyes, you wear glasses. And I was like, Okay. But right. then I got a chance to go to this gifted children's class, which was at another elementary school. Mm-hmm. And I had a new opportunity to remake my, my reputation,
2: mm-hmm. to
1: do all the cool things that I thought were cool. And I was the new kid, and that got me accepted there. Yeah. So I always knew there was another place, there was always another chance. If I had confidence in myself, then I could go to a new place and have a new chance and really do what I wanted to do.
2: I think that's great.
1: I think America is big enough for everybody to do this.
2: It is, It is. and I think that uh, that is the way of the future. Uh, You and I both know of stories, I'm sure, where in past years, parents were not so supportive of adventure Mm -hmm. and their young ones. I am reminded of a story, actually. I knew someone on my neighborhood street, bright neighbor, she was smart, Uh, she attended the same public schools I did. Um, She was recruited to apply to Harvard. And when she told her parents, and they had been in the county, in a small town for generations probably, they were like, no, we don't think you should apply because we want to keep you close to home. That's too far away. You don't want to go to Harvard. And so this woman who had the talent and potential ended up going to Hampton Institute (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, I mean, not to knock on Hampton Institute, it's a wonderful place, but it's not necessarily Harvard University. Even right. post Claudine Gay, it's, it's right. not Harvard University. And so I just think that's an example where parents, because they didn't know more of a larger world and were overly protective, kept their children from greater opportunities. And that's something that saddens me. But I think that's changing going forward into the future. I think we're seeing less yes. of that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I never liked being attributed to being from the ghetto Mm -hmm. because I actually didn't grow up in the ghetto. Right. I grew up in a residential district. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I I do think, uh, you know, a long, long time ago, we talked about busing
2: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, and affirmative action. And I said, well, just look at zip code. You can see what schools don't have really good teachers and where the students don't do very well. And I think the term underprivileged is a good term Mm. uh, because if you're going to be the first person in your family to go to college, you need a network and you need to see people who will talk to you in, you know, wherever you're coming from. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily racial. And I'm, I'm happy to do it with anyone who is, oh, let's say fresh off the boat, as it were, right, right. Uh, into this world where we are, where where the chatting classes are, right. where you hear. If I say, you know, um, oh dear, if I if I say Skip Gates, you know what I'm talking about and sure. whom I'm talking about, and you're familiar with some of his work. Right. Uh, at, at, at the home of you know Joe Blow, you may not know that.
2: And I'm so, so glad you mentioned that it's not race, it's class, because I grew up in a southern suburb, but there were definitely people who were poor and white, as well as those who were working class and black and middle class and black, white and middle class. There was a, a diversity, if you will, of races and classes all thrown together. But I remember yes. maybe a year or two ago, no, last year, actually, um, there was someone in my class who I always admired. Uh, I won't mention her name, but if she's listening, listening, she'll know who she is. But she was always just stunning achiever. She was a clear leader. She was clearly going places. I would look at her and just think, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, she's one of those on the path to success in life. And she did. She became a lawyer, and she became a leading attorney in my home county. She was like one of the power brokers, movers and shakers. Great. So we got together for lunch last year. And I was so delighted to see her because I hadn't seen her since high school, and we were just talking about our families and life, and she told me, and you could have knocked me over, she told me that she had actually grown up in a very poor family. She's a she's a white lady, had mm-hmm. a very mm-hmm. poor family with a dysfunctional dad, and you know, for her mm-hmm. going to college was a big deal, let alone going to law school, let alone becoming a leader,
0: right, a local right. Bar.
2: And I just thought. Her life story so countered the narrative of white privilege and black oppression, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. I never saw her that way until she shared her true story. And so query whether or not we promote um, ignorance about people when we insist upon these artificial contrived frameworks, white privilege, Black yes. oppression, blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. Because you render real stories and real people invisible. And so you, you, you make her not only feel invisible to the greater story of life, but she almost becomes a little resentful because she doesn't see, she doesn't see right. her in the stories we tell ourselves about race. And I think that's yes. important. We need to understand that everyone who is first generation college. Is not black and poor; they may well be white and poor, um, right. but they're not. They don't have a lot of associations or societies to to proclaim. They have to make their own way, and they do. And then yes. when they're in their sixties, you know, they feel at peace enough to share uh, about their difficult upbringing. So to me, that was a marvelous conversation, and I felt blessed because now I knew the rest of her story. She wasn't just someone I looked at from afar and thought, man, she's on the way to success. But now right. I have an even greater appreciation for who she was. You can't That's always great. tell who's upper class or middle class or lower class. You just can't. No, you can't. You Some can't.
1: And family. and there's incentive to fake it.
2: This is um, a true story. true story is I talk out of school always on this podcast. <laughs> I know someone who knows someone. And the person this person knows is the son of one of the five richest people on the planet hmm. but if you were to see this person on the street i won't name the city <laughs> but if you were to see this person on the street you would think they were grunge they dress down they look yeah. like exactly yeah. because they have no need to proclaim i've made it through how they dress the dad right. has made it dad has made it for right. three or four generations into the future right right so i just right. think that's interesting that people sometimes you can't tell a book by its cover sometimes the people who are dressed to the nines are those who are most uh living on the edge and those who yeah. are dressed like hobos are <laughs> you know part of that's especially true here
1: in california <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah. true yeah. in california uh, i mean i know for a fact that um uh, the, uh, George Lucas, yes. who is building a new museum mm-hmm. right next to the uh, uh, Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, right. which is shaped like an alien spaceship.
2: Ooh, sounds um, interesting.
1: He, he uh, is or was married to a black woman. Okay. And so he has mixed race children
2: right.
1: who nobody knows. Nobody knows who they are. Mm-hmm. And and I I, I can imagine, it. I think Will Will Smith did it exactly the wrong way, uh-huh. which was to put his kids in the spotlight. Good How point. tough for them! Good point. And then, Good and point. so. Yeah, you have to. Every generation has to earn their way. I mean, mm-hmm. here I was reading uh, many years now. Uh, I used to study. You know, what's the difference between the rich and the wealthy, or are they really yeah. that different? And I discovered um, that here at UC Irvine, there is a special MBA class for heirs. Oh, so really? if you're likely to come into a bunch of money, right? Uh, you can go to this class, and as you can imagine, it's a combination of douchebags and <laughs> and and people who actually do want to be responsible with right, the money right. that they're that right. they're going to earn, and I, you know a smart. A state planner would say, "You get you know two million if you don't go to this class. You get fifty million if you pass mm. the class." Mm. Uh, and and so, but I, I think there's something for family stability um, that's better than the thrash of you know Wall Street wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think like that same inheritance we have. From the old preachers and people who studied mm-hmm. the Bible, mm-hmm. who then went into law, um, there's an appreciation for what the average person can can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not always great to be on the the bleeding edge and try to be, you know, revolutionary. Yeah. And so, I I think strong families make a difference. I agree. and and, and strong families that hook up with other strong families. They're they're awesome. That's the thing that we ought to be able to do.
2: You're talking Jack uh, and Jill, right? <laughs> uh
1: haven't gotten there yet. Haven't gotten there yet.
2: Man, I you know I just imagine what the little what the Jack and Jill types are thinking in San Diego. Wait, don't tell all of our secrets. Hush <laughs> <laughs> now. <laughs> but but you
1: know, there are still secrets, and I think that's why. Our podcast is going to be valuable because obviously people don't get to, to talk to folks like us every day.
2: It's a shame. And,
1: it's a crime And, and, and yeah, that, that is kind of our black privilege because yeah. we've, we've learned, we've been around enough black people to choose whom we like uh, to associate with and who will really confide in. And
2: including family? Just easy. Just easy. Well, no, yeah.
1: I mean, there's, yeah, there's some, some edges of the family on the family tree that uh, we, don't, we don't go to their church. Um, and, 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 and other people, non-black people, don't have that. Yeah. They, they, they don't know enough black people to put the lie to DEI.
2: Whoa. That was deep, Michael. That was good. That was worthy of yeah. John McWater, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Connie, tape that one. <laughs> <laughs> I am, um, you know, I still agree with you, Michael, and it's kind of weird because, like, when I think of myself just living day to day to day, I don't think of myself as special. I just think of myself as me because this is the only life I know. So it's mm-hmm. a little bit weird when I saw <clears throat> myself defined or labeled as black elite in the Yahoo News story because I don't think Mm. of myself that way but I can see how the outside world might perceive me that way so it's a very odd thing Um, Mm. I'm I'm trying to think do I know people who consciously think of themselves as black elite quote unquote Uh, I only know of one person who probably would have thought of themselves as consciously black elite All right. So that Mm -hmm. person would have been someone I know in my family, and uh, they they, they view themselves as part of the black elite because to them that was a part of race pride. It was showing pride in your race to be in all of the Mm -hmm. deputy societies and Jack and Jill and Alpha Phi Alpha and Alpha Mm -hmm. Kappa Alpha and Delta Sigma Theta and the Mm Belay and the girlfriends and Sag Harbor and Buzzards. We we knew all the places, Michael. (laughs) But for this person, To them, that was part of living a very strong black life. The more elite and exclusive you were, the greater the good you did to counteract the stereotype that black people are dumb and poor. So maybe we shouldn't fault that person. Maybe she was doing a very good thing as she self-conceited herself as black society. What do you think?
1: I don't don't fault those people uh, because I recognize, first of all, how difficult it is to fit in And keep that going, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know. Especially when a marriage or two fails. Yes. The ones where you know everybody in the in the bridal party was gorgeous, and had a degree, and had their own money. Yes. And and somehow it didn't work out. Yes. You know, or one of the kids just goes. You've read my
2: book, just teasing. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: yeah, there's there's. There is a kind of, you know, dangerous yeah. slope if you're going to tippy-toe on on, on, yeah. on that reputation because anything can go wrong with anybody.
2: Oh, yeah, oh, you, yeah. You never know. Oh, yeah. This woman, well, mention names, but this woman was very, very careful to screen the boys her daughter would bring home. I mean, they had to yeah. check certain boxes. And if they didn't, yes. it was hell to pay. And she never really did warm to her son-in-law Uh, over time Uh, so so it's kind of interesting to me that uh, they did those things because in their mind that was a way of elevating the race to make sure I think so yeah
1: but you know I feel sorry for the ones who just do it in Ohio Mm -hmm. you know I'm fortunate that my daughters got to spend time in Europe and in Asia yeah, uh, and and that I've spent some time in South America, mm-hmm. so that we have some balance yes. to understand. Yeah. You know this um, social capital that we have in the United States, the rubber meets the road when nobody understands that stuff.
2: Oh, that's so true. That is so. When true. you say
1: you know I I I rubbed elbows with P Diddy, and they're like, who's that? <gasps> <laughs> or, or you know, I, I I went to a party with the uh, yeah. the publisher of Essence magazine, yeah. uh, Susan. What's her name? Right. And and, and they're like, yeah. So mm-hmm. he says, well, you know, I I I have a cottage in Edgartown mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Martha's mm-hmm. Vineyard, and they're like, what's that? Right. You know, right. we've been we've been on the island of Elba for sure. three hundred years. What, what what do you got there? Right. Right. And right. so so I think people have to get. You know, just even, it's it's the exactly same thing. Mm-hmm. If you're the first in your, in your family to go to college, maybe you should go out of state. Yeah. And if you think you're balling here in the United States, maybe you should spend some time in Switzerland.
2: I think that's a great idea. I mean, one of my uh, sons has spent uh, maybe two, to th- no, no, more like four, three or four months in Kenya. And I think that's a great experience for him. Because mm-hmm. Kenya mm-hmm. is about as different from San Diego as you can get. So... I I bet. Yep, yep. I think that's good. I think that's all good. And you know, we all
1: got something to learn.
2: We do, we do. And you're so insightful, Michael, when you say that we take these insights for granted. But most Americans, most white Americans or Hispanic Americans, have no idea. Or they simply view all blacks as a monolith. They they learn in class, blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. Oh, I feel so sorry for these. Two black men. How can I help them? Reparations yeah. for American slavery is in the back of their <laughs> mind. <laughs> That's another topic yeah. for another day. <laughs>
1: Ooh, for sure, for sure.
2: Do you do you think do you think um, we advance the race <laughs> as we bring joy and confidence to our life's endeavor? Do we do more than people who are pessimistic and live in gloom and doom? I'm thinking of certain scholars. I think we do, yeah, I yeah. think we
1: do, but it is it's personal. Mm-hmm. it's at a personal level, yeah i, I mean i I have begun to have the good fortune to have enough time for my for my daily job to meet some extraordinary people
2: mm-hmm.
1: and And I know I made a conscious decision to cut out time from my work life
2: mm-hmm.
1: to have an avocation where I could write and have people respond to my writing, oh good, and okay. then. And then understand, you know, what the humanities and the liberal arts are, are supposed to do mm-hmm. from an engineer's point of view. Mm-hmm. And so I don't expect the government to do it. I don't expect politics to do it.
2: Mm.
1: I expect that I can make a friend of a chemist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I can make a friend of an attorney. Mm-hmm. I can make a friend of a quality control person who works the line right. in Dearborn, Michigan. Yeah. And they have something to teach me. And I can go overseas and make a friend in Sydney,
2: yep.
1: and and my context is first with my family, of course, but then with the friends I'm able to to make mm-hmm. and sustain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 the strange thing is, I swear to God, my father called me yesterday, and he wants me to send him a book called "The White Friends I Couldn't Keep." Ah. And I, I, I just knew by the title, it's like, uh-oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and he's going to be reading that for his church group. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's, there's that tangent. Right. Uh, right. But, but just another, another tale of complaint by the next generation, sure. the 30-somethings who, who think uh Ta-Nehisi Coates, is the next incarnation of cornell west
2: right right which we or, know not to be the case or kindy or professor Kendi. or candy <laughs> yes, uh, yeah yes, you yeah you want to look
1: in the foothills
2: right but uh <laughs> like I, I still this is podcast number two between us michael and i still hold fast to my vision that it's going to take the generation born in the 2030s in the 2040s to turn things around because i just believe that children always look at the world they inherit and they rebel against that. They see a better, different way. And so when they come into a world defined by wokeness and slogan Mm -hmm. words and dogma, they're going to viscerally react to that. They're just going to push that back. And so I welcome the 20, I'm gonna be here, but I welcome the 2030s and the 2040s because I know it's gonna usher in a golden age in black culture and consciousness beyond the year 2050. So I'm like a, uh, my crystal ball yeah
1: there. it'll be good'll I'll be I'll be watching my uh, my grandchildren say, "You know <laughs> auntie Lisa, Auntie Lisa's woke grandpa <laughs>
2: That's true it's happen. It's okay. that's okay
1: you right. be a chemist: that's
2: right that's right that's right, that's right. so and that's, and that's our secret weapon against uh, the, the woke or the left. I never get a sense that they are into that they look that far ahead to the future. I think they simply assume that things will always be the same in terms of their ability to manipulate the dialogue, to sort of conquer classrooms. And they don't really appreciate the worm will turn as it has throughout human history.
1: Yes, it has, it has. Everybody who wants a revolution doesn't realize the power of a Mm counter-revolution, which which sometimes involves people just standing where they've always been.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So, so have we put Claudine Gay to rest?
1: I think so. I think so. I. I, I wonder. I wonder. Well, I wish Chabon... her well.
2: By the way, I wish her well.
1: Yeah, I do too. I mean, yes.
2: uh,
1: one thing that I wrote is that in the in the journals of modern black martyrdom, mm. she gets more props than Saint George. Hmm. You know, at at, at least, at least, you know, okay, Harvard president was terminated. Mm -hmm. She walked out. She walked out on her own. She'll, she'll find some place to work. That's right. Uh, But it's, it's not, you know, Amadou Diallo. Right. Right. It's not Michael Brown. Right. You know, at least we're saying, oh yeah, there are black people who are fantabulously successful. And guess what? We get to do the Peter Pan thing too.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah. that's, you know, that's fine.
2: And you notice, and this was in that Yahoo News story that I was quoted in, they, they were lamenting the fact that there wasn't more of a, um, a black American uproar about Claudine's resignation on Twitter or in the streets, as it were. And I just thought, <laughs> no, that's not going to happen.
1: <laughs> no, I know. I know. No, no, I mean, no. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if you remember the a soldier story. The so yes. oh, soldiers play. Yes, yes. Well, of course you remember Sergeant Waters,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, played by Adolph Caesar. Yes. Who played Mr.'s dad in The Color Purple, he the original the color. He is
2: spitting image of my uncles. He could be a twine Oh my uncles. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That's but he, what could, could your
1: uncle twirl his mustache, too?
2: <laughs> 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 but, but Sergeant
1: Waters represented the, the, the black person who was like, well, you you country shuffling yeah, 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 the right, black right, race right. can't afford you no more.
2: Right,
1: right, 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 right. but it's not like that. We can afford all kinds of mistakes, right. and and we will make lots of mistakes, mm-hmm. and we will go down poorly chosen ideological paths,
2: right.
0: and
1: we'll pay the price mm-hmm. uh, 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 because you know there'll always be somebody who says, you know, well, maybe that wasn't the best thing you could have done. Sure. True. And and maybe you didn't live up to it. Hey, it's hard hard work being a Harvard president. My god,
2: I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I mean, I I know my limitations Michael. I remember back in the 1990s, a wonderful friend, good buddy. He came up to me, I think it was 1997. And he said, "Hey Wink." I said, "Yes." "Do you want to be a judge?" And I thought about it for like a second or two. That thought no, that's not really my strong <laughs> point in life. And so I did not yeah. follow up. But there are people, Michael, who would have like jumped on that opportunity, even though they Correct. may have known themselves they weren't temporarily suited to be a judge, mm-hmm. that their mm. handling the rules of evidence wasn't as sharp as they could have been. But I, okay. I remember that because the racial dynamics were such, because I was part of a black bar association that was very powerful, that if mm-hmm. I had said yes to my buddy... The odds are maybe 50 50. I might have been a judge, but it would have been awful. Yeah. I would have been awful. I would have been <laughs> trapped on the ditch, knowing that I'm doing Ooh. I'm here for the black people, but inside I know I really shouldn't be doing this. I should be writing books and novels and whatever. I think right, a lot of right. I think a lot of black people in this age they're given opportunities and they know in their heart it's not the best fit for me, but I want to do this. Because I can advance the race. I can be a first black X or a first black Y. Mm-hmm. And you end up having sort of the golden handcuffs. Hmm. You never want to be a black judge on the bench, regretting every day you have to wake up in the morning and try cases. That's just not a good situation. So,
1: Back in the 80s, I read a book by an author named Lynn Washington. Okay. Uh, and it was black judges on justice. Mhm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Do, you, do you uh recall that book? I recall or... the title but never read it. That was such an insightful thing for me. Mhm. Okay cuz here I am, you know, my my first corporate job. Right. And people were talking about you know that's that's when the the gang wars were still mm. significant here in in LA County. Mm-hmm. Uh, But, and it's just, well, are we getting justice or, you know, Abu, Abu uh, Mumia Jamal, Mumia Abu Jamal was the guy on everybody's lips back in in those days. Mm -hmm. And I got an opportunity to to, to hear what black judges thought about the justice system. And it was such a, a range of opinions that I was like, okay, that's cool. I don't have to worry about that anymore.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, it didn't help me. I had a crush on uh, a young lady who was a judge's daughter. And reading that book didn't help. (laughs) (laughs) But it helps me uh, personally to understand, yeah, there's there's still black folks way above my head. Mm -hmm. And I can be comfortable where I am
2: sure exactly exactly um, yeah and it's a it's a small universe of black judges although it's increasing over time I think um, I think in San Diego the the Black bar Association really did it right I think that the percentage of black judges in San Diego is definitely more than the black population in San Diego and probably mm. three times as great as the percentage of black lawyers so what happens is because they're Few black lawyers and the black population is greater. The few black lawyers come together and they can be very unified and they exercise mm-hmm. a lot of influence in terms of, well, we're going to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down to be appointed to the bench by the governor. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. because it's such a small group, if anyone shows an inkling to want to be a judge, people are hot to support you, which makes sense because they yes. know you. But then other bar associations will defer to your bar association because you're the black group. So what happens is it takes a small number of black lawyers to make a black judge in San Diego, which is kind of an interesting, interesting. thing. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I have
1: uh, I have some friends, uh, more of my wife's friends, yeah. uh, who uh, are a large class of, of black attorneys here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know at least one former DA, mm-hmm. and I know three or four people who used to work for Johnny Cochran. Oh, okay. And so... Uh, there
2: used to I've, be... I've, uh, do you remember... Did you ever meet the, the uh, black federal judge in L.A. who was like the chief judge? I can't remember his name. Terry Hatfield or something like that?
1: I I don't remember names.
2: Yeah, he was the chief judge of the entire federal district in L.A., and I met him once for for lunch, and it was really a nice lunch because um, we were supposed to be back at his uh, chambers to start the trial at 1 o'clock. He was in a trial, and we were enjoying our talk. We were just talking, talking, talking about stuff, his family. I think he had kids at some major firm in L.A., and then I was worried because it was like 105, 110, 115, but the trial is starting up at one o'clock. So I was like, "Are you, we should we should stop now? We need to. You, you have a trial coming up." And he said to me with the utmost grace, "Well, they can't start without me." <laughs> <laughs> That's true power, right. my friend. True power. Yeah, 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 <laughs>
1: yeah. I just, I just like Blair Underwood uh, on L. A. Law. Uh-huh, he uh-huh. was the coolest. Right. He was the coolest.
2: He was from Petersburg, right? I think Petersburg, Virginia. Blair Underwood.
1: Let's see what uh, Wikipedia so. says. He's uh, right. No, he's uh, he was born in uh, Tacoma.
2: Oh, okay. And went to
1: Carnegie Mellon.
2: Totally wrong. I'm thinking of some, there's some famous actor who, black male, who was born in Petersburg, Virginia. And so it's not him, but no. maybe someone else. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, no, wait.
1: He did go to Petersburg High School.
2: My memory's still there. My memory's still whoa, there. Oh, you got it. Yeah, and that high it. school is just like 10 miles down the road from where I grew up. 10 wow. miles down the road. Yeah. Nice, nice, yeah, nice. Yep, yeah. So, you know, this I'm enjoying these sessions so much, Michael, for several reasons. Number one, it's just a joy to talk free about stuff without slogan words and dogma and whatever. Yeah. And number two, yeah. I'm enjoying the idea of Laurily McWhorter sweating at night thinking about Weeke and Michael <laughs> on their tail.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if you know they they had the November questions.
2: Oh. And okay. one of
1: my questions came up. Yes. And I said, you know, when when are we going to be able to to uh, give up association with the struggle?
2: Oh, okay. Good question.
1: And and they kind of misinterpreted the question. Uh-huh, they didn't know right. what I really meant because mm-hmm. I brought up this book by uh, Frank Kofsky mm-hmm. called uh, "John Coltrane and the Revolution in Black Music." Right. And when I started reading about Coltrane, I was like, "This dude was born upper middle class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He he never had any of those ghetto problems." Yeah. But here comes this uh, this author Kofsky. Who says? Well, this this it's about revolution, and he should join the Marxist. Uh, yeah, and I was like, no, stop. <laughs> and and I don't know. I, I again, I I guess some of those people are still in the Harvard Corporation Board, still thinking about all we want is revolution. That's so we better of- put them up on on this thing okay, so they okay, feel like they're a okay. part of the establishment. Now
2: I'm going to give you slight blowback, Michael. Slight blowback because I looked at the members of the Harvard Corporation and other uh-huh. than our former president, Claudine Gay, as she's now out, uh, there are at least two black members that I recognized. One mm. is Kenneth Chenault, who as you know, was the former CEO of American Express. And secondly- a big is, hero. Exactly, and secondly is Theodore V. Wells, Harvard Law School grad, JD from, uh, MABA from Harvard, big partner, Wall Street law firm. He may now be in DC. But he, he was just an accomplished. I think it was like voted one of the top litigators, one of the top 100 litigators in the country a few years ago.
1: Wow.
2: So, my point is those two gentlemen, Chenault and Wells, they're not exactly revolutionary Marxists. Okay. <laughs> Chenault right. has a net worth of like, what, $20 million or something? 50 I forget. And Theodore Wells. In his
1: shoe, at least.
2: <laughs> and Theodore is representing the biggest. Money, uh, money, clients. He can. So uh, I don't. It's odd to me. Why Good those, for them. Why the exactly? But why would those two very successful black men be kind of rubber stamping the Marxist CRT vision of the world? I don't. Good get that. question. I don't, I don't know. That. I don't know. Could it be that
1: they were? Who's Could... on the rest of the board? We'll we'll never know. Ah. It's it's a mystery wrapped up in enigma.
2: That's true. Behind a riddle. That is true, that is true. You know what's funny? Wouldn't it be funny if the next president was like Kenneth Chenault? Wow. Wouldn't that be funny?
1: That would be That
2: but would you, be but awesome. You, but you could see it because he was a former CEO of American Express, yes. he knows yes. how to run, yeah. You heard it here first, With ladies me? and gentlemen. Kenneth Chenault, dark <laughs> horse candidate for the Harvard presidency. We're breaking news, Michael, we're breaking news here.
1: All right. <laughs> We saw it first. The Wise Elders.
2: That's right. The Wise Elders. I like that.
1: <laughs> the the Post Black.
2: Exactly. One day we'll talk about transracial, but that'll be in the distant future.
1: Yeah, that'd be fun. I mean, yeah. there, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of analogs. Uh, I like Post Black. Uh, Which is cool. And, 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 and Greg Thomas, my friend, uh-huh. uh, jazz genius, mm-hmm. uh, understands, understands how the metaphysics of jazz can work in a corporate environment. Ah. It's, it's it's brilliant. If you haven't heard him out, he's right, right, he's right. great. You got to keep the rhythm. There's room to improvise. Yes. There's room to lay back and and let the other players play, uh, but you have to think on your feet. I like that. And and respond to the dynamic.
2: I like that. I like that.
1: And remember, you're always on stage.
2: Remember that, so, Claudine uh, Gay, just teasing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for real, for real.
1: Uh, but uh, I forget why I was bringing up uh, Greg. Um, I don't know. In, in the context of.
2: Uh, we were talking, Kenneth Chenault, CEO. You heard to hear first breaking news live from uh, Southern California. Yeah! <laughs> and his mind goes blank. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think we ought to wrap it up then.
2: Sounds good. This was fun. Enjoyed it.
1: I did. I really did. Hope uh, you can hear I, me. I
2: hope the sound is okay.
1: Uh, we can fix it in post. Oh, cool. So cool. have a good weekend. Welcome well, to the too. new year.
2: Yeah, you bet. Welcome to the new year. And uh, and,
1: and we will survive. And will. Harvard will survive. Got it. At first we were afraid. We were petrified. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but still I'm here by your side. <laughs> All right. All right. Sounds Take good. care. You too.
1: See you Bye. next time, wait.
2: Outstanding. Bye-bye. And number you have dialed.
0: You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast.